I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, there's nothing on but us now. Okay, cool. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me here on Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host. My guest is a powerhouse on and off screen. She's an Emmy-winning actress you know from Santa Barbara as the headstrong lawyer, Julia Wainwright-Capwell. Currently, you can see her as Alexis Davis on General Hospital. She delivers powerful performances on screen, and she's a powerful presence off screen as well. She is an outspoken, fierce advocate for a number of socially important issues. Stand back and get ready, because today we're hanging out with Nancy Lee Gron. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. How have you been doing these days? I am doing spectacularly well. I am in the Midwest on a lake. So jealous. And I've been here for two weeks and I hopefully am here for another week. And it was necessary. It was, you know, I have not been out of Los Angeles. I grew up on a lake. Mm -hmm. So the weather changes, the leaves are moving. I feel like there's wild kingdom in front of our house. Um, <laughs> there's squirrels and, and I've been terrorized by purple Martins, but we're, not, right. we're now okay. <laughs> they monopolized the pier and they took control of the pier because they had a nest underneath it. So I, of course, the first thing I do is get here is go out on the pier and, you know, and I got dive bombed. <laughs> so I've been keeping the, uh, an accounting of the purple Martin war. And so there's peace now on the pier. It must feel nice to be out of LA on a break, right? The weather changes, there's clouds, there's movement in LA. I don't even know why they have the weather. 
every day it's like it's a beautiful day out unless and it, you know it's hot sunny there's no clouds there's no uh-huh. movement every day is the same and so the versatility alone the sounds and the air and the water and the movement is just it's just thrilling me well i really appreciate that you're taking the time to talk while you're out there enjoying yourself but i'd love to learn more about you so tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up for you what your family was like and some of the things that you remember as a child or teenager that you remember being a moment that made a mark on your life what was that moment what was that experience and how did it sort of color the way you see the world? I grew up well um, with loving parents and a real sense of family, that family was the, the, the center, that I had parents that it was very clear that they, they put their children first. And I'm not saying that's the healthy choice. It was wonderful for us. I think it's important that parents don't answer to their own calling as well as their children's calling. I don't think that one way or the other is probably the healthiest thing. But in our case, my mom and dad put us first and I felt very safe. I felt very loved. I felt um, comfortable. And I think that goes with feeling safe in a way. But we were very family oriented. My younger sister came five years later. My older sister's two years older than I am. There was music. My parents did choreography for community theater. And it was this beautiful proscenium stage. People that had all different professions that found this love of theater and they put on musicals with full orchestras. That to me is the most profound memory for me that I think contributed to the trajectory of my life. Uh, in that I saw such a joy in them doing it. And I thought, wow, I want to go in, in there. That looks fun. And they did the choreography for Oklahoma and oh, cool. uh, Man of La Mancha and Fiddler on the Roof. It was so exciting to me. And this lake. We grew up in the summers on Green Lake. My Nana and Pa built a house that I just took my fiance to oh, and showed so him where my parents met a restaurant on the lake and my father was the bartender and my mother went there and because she had the lake house. So that place has such a familiar feeling of happy. Mm -hmm. My sense memories of my childhood are mostly from the summers on this lake. Now I'm at a lake that's two hours south of that. And it's a similar feeling of the lake. I mean, I love like it's just happy i felt happy and i enjoyed it i loved the 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 tastes at carvers and the restaurant where my nana's best friend would make homemade pecan rolls and i can smell them she made homemade vichy swat i could taste it and the smell of ivory soap because we'd they'd wash our hair and in in the in the lake we'd go from nana's pier we'd swim to peg o'callahan's pier she'd have homemade chocolate chip cookies that she oh my god the visual of my dad you know skiing barefoot off the pier and my grandpa with his hat you know cap Mm -hmm. fishing you know going taking the boat out and fishing in the scary boathouse you know where where they kept the boat there were spiders in there and my we were like ah and and it was a beautiful house you know it was just so incredible to take Richard and let him see right those two things have the most impact on me 
I think have had the most impact on me and what I enjoy in terms of my surroundings, where I feel environmentally the most comfortable, mm-hmm. and happy, and also the theater. Right. I introduced that. And I, I actually walked into that world. Yeah, you did. It sounds like your love for the arts and performing were born at some of these times that you were telling me about and, and obviously with your family. When you talk about feeling safe and comfortable, when was that time challenged? Do you remember when that was challenged? Sometimes when you feel safe and comfortable, you don't really have the need to learn to step up. So I was an only child. Uh And I also grew up, you know, a little bit sheltered, Mm -hmm. but very safe. Because I felt safe, it took a lot longer for me to develop a sense of voice, my voice. Tell me about the first time you felt a little bit challenged from your safety and comfort. What happened? What was that like for you? So the comfort that I felt growing up in my home was um, that was just an extension of unconditional love that was there then that was there throughout my entire life. I still feel it from above. So that that's a given. Mm-hmm. We were always unified as a family. We had a sit down dinner every night, no canned vegetables, fresh vegetables, you know, and, and my parents were not wealthy. Uh, they had modest jobs. My, my mom worked from the time I was, I think seven and until she was 70 something. She started out as a secretary back then is what they call mm-hmm. executive assistants. And she worked her way up to being publisher. So she was very accomplished and very smart and very non-complaining. Mm. And her children were first. My dad would do the dishes and my, my dad did laundry. My dad changed our diapers. You know, back in the 50s, that, that was wasn't done. That wasn't done. Yeah. He was that guy. He was very different than other fathers. And kids in the neighborhood would come to my father for a hug. And uh, we were sort of um, unique in that way. Just a very loving, you could count on, on, on that love. Mm-hmm. So the challenge was the earliest I can remember, or the, the age that seems to stick out is 11. My dad was a teacher and a wonderful teacher. And he went into my mom's dad's business selling children's wear, or as we refer to them as schmatties, so that he could support three children. And even with their combined salaries, it was necessary. And what you do when you sell clothes is buyers come in and then you take them to lunch and you have martinis or cocktails. And he got addicted to those martinis. Um, Physically and psychologically, I think he was so dead internally in his spirit from doing something that was so not what he was put on this earth to do. Right. So the combination of the physical addiction and him wanting to escape, it made him a really full-fledged alcoholic. Wow. Mind you, the love is still there. Yeah. But now from a key in the door, you can tell if daddy's drunk or not. It was never a good night when daddy was drunk because somehow it would always escalate into something. It was never physical, never physical, but there was verbal, verbal abuse. It was always really clear, which is not always the case with all children of alcoholics, that this was not, it was, it was, it was not dad. So you recognize that it was a disease at that age. 
That was sick dad. That was dad that didn't love himself. I didn't really understand the disease of alcoholism, obviously. We're also a very communicative family, so we will talk about these things. But I mean, I witness, you know, I mean, bad things, right? bad actions, you know, having to drag him down the hall and pour coffee down his throat. Oh God, Nancy, I'm so sorry. This is not unique. I mean, everyone is unique. Understood. Yeah, yeah. But the dynamics involved in it are very similar for many, many, many kids. Right. And we talk about it. And I remember always the next morning he'd be, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, it was the thing where I'm doing my first play in school and he stands up and starts clapping and making a spectacle. And, you know, just that feeling of, fuck. But it was never, and this was actually really confusing because I loved him so much. Right. And I loved my mom so much, who basically just took it a lot. She took, she took the hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the physical hit, but the emotional hit. Right. Where she shouldn't have, because if she had left him, we would have been devastated. And I think that would have died. I really do. I'm not saying what's right or wrong for any family. I grew up really kind of making a lot of mistakes in relationships. They were all amazing there are ways this plays out in your life. Yes, absolutely. It's so, so incredibly confusing and heartbreaking and sad and scary and anguishing and all of those things. But I still always knew by both my parents, I was loved and supported in everything that I did. And they showed up for everything. Sometimes drunk, but he was always there. Never not took a phone call from his kids. Okay. They would say now, I have best friends that I've known since my five days, and I'd rather have your drunk dad than my dad because everyone loved my dad. Nothing I was denied as a result of that. But when he got home from work, very often until we went to bed, it was not fun. But what I will say is that there was an incident when I was, I don't know, was I 22 or 23? I was home and Wendy said, my younger sister said something and he threw coffee in her face. And it wasn't hot. It was filled with milk. But he was so stunned that he had done that. And my mom got up from the table, went to get the car keys. And she said, we're going to the care unit, which happened to be right across the street, mind you. And he got right up and he went. And it was the look I felt. Oh, my God. I felt so sorry for him. And he went in. Right. We were there at that care unit every day for three weeks. No one else had any family there. We were playing pool with all the other alcoholics. And my dad never drink again. Okay. And he also quit smoking. Wow. And the smoking is actually what killed him. But anyway, so, um, and not only that, we all had to go into the therapy with them. We Al-Anon. I had private therapy when I went back to LA. He worked that program. Mm-hmm. He went back to teach, became teacher of the year at one of the biggest high schools in, the, in Illinois. Cool. And he became an addictions counselor and there were hundreds of kids he saved and they were at his funeral. Wow. Sounds like he really turned things around. Most kids in, that become grownups don't get that end of the story. Right. I mean, there's so much there, but to have that sense of comfort be given to you by your family, your you know close-knit family, which is great, but also have someone from that family also be the source that puts that sense of safety at risk 
must have been very unsettling. But I also don't want to breeze over that you're knowing the difference between your dad and the disease of alcoholism at 11 is, it's big. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta. And I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. And you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you remember what gave you that inclination and what did you walk away with, like in terms of your voice from that experience? What I can say is I knew how my dad was. Like I said, he was very unique at that time and so available to us. Yeah. So when he was disconnected by alcohol, you could tell it turned the light out and he was unrecognizable. And then I would recognize as it was like I, it, to me, it was very Jekyll and Hyde-ish. It was clear for my sister as well, and certainly clear for my mother. And that's, I think, why we stayed unified through this together. We stayed together and it, and got through the other side. And that may not be healthy or good for some other family, but that's what we did. And by the way, I did not come out unscathed. No, no one's saying that. I spent. Many, many years of my life trying to come to terms with who I am, what I can count on from a man, what I can't count on from a man. And what I had to do was literally learn to love myself without a, any, without a, a, a net underneath. Now, how that manifested was me choosing relationships where I wasn't getting my needs met or I thought I could change them. That's a very common dynamic. If I say the right thing or if I be the right thing, I can change this man right, and get him to love me or fill that place where I didn't love myself. Right. I mean, I was the A student, I was president of class, I was homecoming queen, I was all those things because I gave off a false vibe of how together I was and how how collected I was. And I was a mess. I, I I would be afraid of things and jump through my fear. I would do it. 
But I really, I think a lot of my raison d'etre is self-love to find that. And I learned to do that by becoming an actor because I had so many feelings. And I also had this this thing, I think I came into the world like this, where I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm segueing for a second because I'm reading Untamed. I've been reading a lot of Glennon Doyle lately. So Glennon Doyle is talking about, and I think this is all true about, you know, women have trouble self-realizing themselves, even without yes. problems, without the, you know, extraneous circumstances around them, because we're conditioned to fit into this box. I made it clear from the beginning that I wasn't going to fit into somebody else's idea of what I'm supposed to be. When did that sort of click in your head? I must have been nine, eight or nine where I said to my mom, why do women take men's last names when they get married? You were eight when you thought this? Well, maybe I was 10. I, I can't remember. But I was young. My mother just, oh boy. <laughs> For me, it's about what's fair. Always, and I was always, a, you know, if you, I had to go to my room, I would go, why? I need to know why. Cut to, you know, 15 years later, and I'm in acting school, and the school I'm in, uh, in Bellevue, is all about, you can't do anything unless you can answer the question why. You cannot act unless you know why you're doing it. I mean, it's funny how you find yourself at a place that helps keep defining you. Right. You know, and then I ended up being the perfect candidate for college, and I grew up in Skokie, and that's what everyone did. And I thought that's what I'm going to do, because that's what you do. And then my mother said to me, right before I was supposed to go to uh, to the University of Illinois, which is where we could afford to go. She said, you don't have to go. So what were your thoughts when she said that? Well, I was doing a show downtown. I was already working professionally, but uh, because they let me out of my senior year at Niles North because I was a good student and I had gotten this, I gotten into Goodman Theater. They saw me in a production. This is where I believe I have a team and that team was directing me. Uh, They set it up and I was still not self-realized. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to college because that's what you do. And I also thought theater is not maybe something, you, you know, that may be a hobby. I'm not sure. I still am very practical. I'm, I'm a wild child, but I'm very practical as well. And a wild child in my thinking, not in my doing. You're being. I yeah. always behaved. So my mom just said to me, you don't have to go. I said, thank you. Because I never allowed myself to um, think that. Hmm. But the minute she said it, I went, I'm not going. That is other people's story. That's not my story. And I had already had a taste of life outside of the box of Skokie. Here's what you do. Blah, 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 blah. blah. Right. She just said exactly what I needed to hear. And, and she knew it. And we never even discussed not going or anything. I mean, my family has always followed my lead. And even when I wasn't leading, they believed in me. They believed in that I had talent. Right. I never got any resistance from them about, you know, following the paths that I followed. At this point, though, I mean, you were talking about you presented this very sort of strong persona, you know, someone who was self-realized, but you were saying internally you were still like not really 100% there. Not even close to 100% there. Yeah. And that makes sense because that takes a lot of time. When your mom said you didn't have to go to college and that structure was removed and you felt like, yeah, that's, that's perfect for me. Mm-hmm. 
Like when did your inside self catch up with your outside self? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that was a a quantum leap shifting moment. Yeah. You said that to me. I never then again doubted the path I was going to take. That's great. You gave me permission to be myself. Yeah. And myself was not a self that fits into the box that society says you should fit into. I love that. That's really one of the many touch points of this podcast. It's such an incredible lesson that you learned at that point when your mom said that, that I'm out of this box. Now, another thing that I wanted to get to uh, is you use your position to advocate and speak out on many different things. And you are involved with many great charities. You've got Smile Train, which is, you know, your mom had a cleft palate. You know, unfortunately, much of the world judges you and treats you based on what you look like. Um, you're also involved with the Bob Gron Foundation. You're involved in the Rain, Rape, and Abuse and Incest National Network. So, Nancy, you're involved with a lot of incredible charities. My mother was born with a cleft palate. She had actually a very good surgeon, thank God, um, growing up in Chicago with my nana and pa. But she was bullied and made fun of. And she was the booby prize uh, for a college date. And I never, ever, ever heard that story until I asked her when, when I was older. And I said, tell me what happened. Tell me what it was like. Because all the times when I'm like going, I'm fat, I'm, I'm stupid, I don't have, you know, my hair, I just complain. She never once used that. Never once said, you want something to complain about? You want, why don't you appreciate, you know, whatever. She, she just never, my mother just took things in stride and made the best of it always. What an amazing woman. And my father's foundation that we set up because it's it gives a money a five hundred dollars scholarship to any high school kid that right that has beaten it. There's endless amounts of charity, and my parents always gave more than what they had. They were always doing charity, always. Um, they taught dance to Down syndrome adults. That's awesome. And if I ever was started to feel too sorry for myself, go do something for somebody else. That really does work. But I say the same thing to my to my kid. I I was very well aware of the importance of uh, giving of yourself to help somebody else, and always very well aware of how lucky we are and weren't wealthy family at all. But we were just fine. And right, it's on both sides of my family. You know, I have a good line of kindness in my family. It's a nice heirloom that's been passed for generations. And I've passed that on to Kate. My sisters have passed that on to children. So we want to keep that going. Right. Um, And thinking of other people and speaking up for other people. It's clear that you are using your position and platform to try and create change. Anyone that follows you and your social media knows you're a very outspoken advocate uh, for many things. Now, devil's advocate question, and I've heard this said in conversations, and I've also seen comments like this on social media, where some people may believe, you know, celebrities should just stay out of politics or social issues. Celebrities should just stick to acting or whatever. 
here's what I believe, but I'd love to get your position on this. I think every single human being has the power to be an agent of change, to contribute in a meaningful and lawful way. I think that, quote unquote, celebrities or people in the media almost have a responsibility to um, use the power and the exposure of their platform to contribute positively. So what would your response be in terms of people saying celebrities should stay out of politics? I mean, do you think it's it's almost like, do you feel that it's a responsibility to speak up? I do. Yes. I don't think that that's a blanket rule for all celebrities. Yeah, definitely not a blanket rule. And everyone has to do what's right for them. I know that there are huge stars, uh, much, much uh, more famous than, than I am, for sure, that don't use social media, that don't speak, but they give financially. Because right. They have millions and millions of dollars, and they, they're very generous, and that matters a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have that kind of money, so I give what I can, which is just, you know, I certainly give all the time, but I can comment on what I've seen in the last five years, which I think have been inarguably the most dangerous years of my lifetime in regards to our country. Mm -hmm. The precariousness of our democracy. Yeah. So I saw what celebrities were speaking out because we were in this little group together. We, we had our own DM group as well. I mean, in terms of, even when we were trying to turn Texas blue, helping do that, there's Deborah Messing, there's Valerie Bertinelli, there's mm. Piper Paraboo, there's uh, Anthony Rapp, there's Cher, there's Bette Midler. There were people that were willing to risk their brand, risk losing fans. I had 70,000 followers go bye-bye. First of all, using my platform to amplify my voice and the voice of other people and information that I thought people needed to have. Right. And encouraging people to get involved because we were, and I believe we still are in crisis. I saw who didn't. Personally, for me, it made me very angry at those people. They don't owe it to me to do it. They don't owe it to anyone to do it when we needed to be talking to each other and communing with each other and supporting each other and advocating with each other and using the numbers that we may have on social media that other people don't have to not do that at a time when it was necessary for people to come together for, for people, bullhorns to be, you know, extended everywhere. Yeah. And for people Celebrities to have chosen not to say anything or do anything or participate or advocate in order to not lose their fans, that bugged me. And so now everyone's doing it, right? Yeah. But I will forever remember the small group of celebrities, again, people with much, you know, more expansiveness to fans than I have. Right. But I know who, who, who spoke and who didn't. You've never stepped away from speaking out. What keeps you steadfast in your beliefs 
and your advocacy work in using your platform, not just like in terms of addressing uh, the situation of the country, but also, again, like those charities that I just listed. What keeps you so committed to, you know, using your voice and your reach? Because it's all I've got. It's all I've got. I've got my voice. I've got um, my soapbox. It's, it's how I can help. And I'm not comfortable not helping. I'm not comfortable being silent when I know something's wrong. Where did that sense of stepping up and speaking your mind come from? I think it's something I came into the world with. I also think that um, my mom and dad let us know at an early age that we mattered and that as women in particular, my father always said as a, as a man, the prominent male image in my life was saying to me as a young girl that girls can do anything. Women are great. So, and of course, then by example, I saw my mom be that. That's so great. She was so authentic. There wasn't a false bone in my mother's body. So I, I was raised by a great woman. My sisters are great women. So I was able to gather great women around me, always. My friends, you know, my daughter has 13 godmothers. I would entrust her life with any one of them. Having all these great women around me makes it really easy for me to recognize greatness in a woman. And by the way, you aren't great just because you're a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There are plenty of women that I don't think are so great. It's not like you don't get a card going, I'm a woman, I'm great. No, it's it's about character and integrity and choices. Right. Yeah. <laughs> In answer to your question, um, you know, we were led to believe that as women, we mattered and we were, and what we thought mattered. I recognized that things weren't fair, that women weren't treated the same way that men were, and that was never okay with me. I started out, you know, being vocal about getting involved in politics was when I heard George Bush Sr. you know, talk about how he thought Roe versus Wade should be overturned. And I remember lying in bed and I literally sat up and I went, no, you know, it (laughs) blew out of my mouth. There was no one in the house. It's a perfect segue, Nancy, because the question I wanted to ask you is, it seems like there was a before and after. I'm not really sure when that mark was, but before women were kind of pitted against each other. And recently there has been a shift where women are coming together more, which is great. And that needs to continue. And there have been strides made in terms of equality for women, but there is still so much work that needs to be done. What are your thoughts and what do you think needs to be done? I think it's important to to fight for women's right to be seen, heard, and given the same respect that a man gets. Not more, not less, the same. And, you know, there's a lot of bad juju and a lot of centuries of horribleness toward women that need to be made up for. I think that women should be valued, but more importantly, women should value themselves. They have to figure out a way. Everyone has challenges and some are much worse than others and some makes it more difficult. but, But women owe it to themselves to be authentic and to fight for their right to be seen as all the things that they are. Yeah, I agree. I do think that women 
in general, struggle with recognizing our own values and worth sometimes? It's just, it's sort of um, systemic. Yes. Yes. If we just recognize it, at least for now, that's something because we've got a long way to go. Right. Different expectations set on women. You know, you get brownie points for being selfless. Eh, Wrong. (laughs) You You should get brownie points for being all that you are because you should be all that you are. Right. Women still are doing 10 times more than, than men yeah. in, in raising families and working and all those things. It's not even close to being fair. Right. But there's a certain acceptance that women's role is this. Right. That, I think, has to really be examined and investigated and talked about and rethought. Absolutely. So for people who are listening and are not quite where you are in terms of a sense of self, what would your advice be? Everyone is unique and everyone, like I said, is more than I said earlier on. Yeah. So you have to just pay attention to your life, pay attention to your feelings. I use my feelings as my guidance system. You know, it works for me because I'm an actor. So it's based on feelings. I'm sort of a, a trained responder. I, I feel my way through life. Not everyone needs to stand up and speak out and be armed for battle. There's different ways of doing it. Exactly. For me, it's easy for me to say this now because I have really made a research project of my relationships with men, of my my experiences, how I react to them, how it makes me feel. I have read books. I have gone to seminars. I have tried different things. I have read near-death experience books. I worked on my spirituality. I didn't have a child until I was 40. I wanted to marry, I think, every boyfriend, every serious relationship I had. Right. Thank God. I, my, the title of my book will be, Thank God They Dumped Me. <laughs> okay. Have they not? Each time that happened, it made me have to find, dig deeper to find out who I am, what I want, I feel. Right. What matters to me. So I grew alone. I didn't have someone beside me. I didn't have a husband or anything else to, and that works for some people. That wouldn't have worked for me. I needed to figure this out on my own. But what I would say is to pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your feeling. Try to follow the thought that feels good. When I felt bad, I would go, I I found Marianne Williamson. I went to lecture. I found Esther Hicks in Law of Attraction. I realized that I needed to change the way that I think. I read near-death experiences. I found Dr. Moody. I was always learning something outside of myself and inside myself. Honestly, being afraid or being miserable or being discontent is a great indicator. It helps you find out what you want. And then going after that thing that you want in a way that works. And sometimes that way is just sitting still. And having faith that it'll work out. I have gone through so much growth spurts and back steps and then forward steps. And but I I paid attention and I I didn't do things in a in a typical way. You did it your way. I did it my way. You have to figure out a way to love yourself and love your life, regardless of the circumstances. And very often, I didn't like the circumstances. And I had to figure that out. 
Yeah, it can be a very tough road, but it's also a very worthy one as well. It's worth investigating. I mean, go step into it and step through it and don't escape it. Don't try to um, deny it. Find even the difficult things interesting. So Nancy, you're going to help sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. (laughs) Okay, I'm Nancy Lee Gron, and I represent having a soapbox where I can amplify my authentic voice and share my authentic voice as well as sharing the voice of others. Thank you to Nancy Lee Gron for her time lending her voice and leveraging her platform to speak out on important issues. Follow Nancy on social media. I'll have those links in the episode description. And coming up next, she's an award-winning ballerina for the New York City Ballet, an activist, and the author of Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina. Georgina Pascogan stops in. It is no lie that I am the first Asian-American female soloist to have ever been promoted out of the corps de ballet of New York City. And it's 70, that's a seven and a zero near existence. Hey everyone, it's Georgina Pascogan, the Rogue Ballerina. My episode of Reppin is next, so don't miss it. Check out Reppin on all of your favorite podcast platforms and every episode is available for download. So get them on your devices and share. And if you like this episode, leave a review on any of the platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening. And let's talk, you guys. I'm on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and you can get more of our guests on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast and check out some exclusive content. Always thank you to Nelson Pinero for working his magic and love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.